You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Ignacio Jimenez has extensive international experience in conservation. He's coordinated research and management projects with manatees in Costa Rica and Nicaragua, with Golden Crown Safacas in Madagascar, worked on wetlands and protected areas in El Salvador, and coordinated and published a national assessment of the Spanish experience in endangered species recovery. He has a degree in animal biology from the Universidad de Valencia in Spain, and a master's in wildlife management and conservation from the Universidad Nacional in Costa Rica. He worked for Tompkins Conservation in Argentina between 2005 and 2018, where he coordinated the largest reintroduction program in the Americas. This initiative included restoring populations of giant anteater, pompous deer, tapir, peccary, green-wing macaw, maned wolf, and jaguar. He spent 2016 in South Africa in order to learn how public and private organizations in Africa manage and integrate nature reserves, rewilding, and ecotourism. In 2018, Ignacio started collaborating with Brazilian organizations to establish two large conservation landscapes in the Atlantic Forest and Pantanal. He returned to Spain in that year and is presently coordinating a project aimed to establish new or expanded protected areas in that country. He works for Fundación Global Nature, is a board member of Rewilding Spain and the IUCN Conservation Translocation Group, and is also a National Geographic Explorer. Ignacio's main theme of interest is institutional ecology, learning how to design institutions and organizations to improve social and biodiversity outcomes. Today we talk about that, his new book, and exciting opportunities for rewilding in Spain. So I want to talk all about your book that's being published this fall by Island Press, Effective Conservation, Parks, Rewilding, and Local Development. But I especially am captivated by your idea behind spaces, political, psychological, and ecological as we talk about rewilding on different continents. Okay, I think that's that's something that I've been thinking lately, especially once I returned to, to Europe, to Spain, which is my hometown, after working in developing countries for more than 20 years, and just finding that even though some landscape, they have lots of space for, let's say, large carnivores to return, uh, that doesn't mean that societies are willing to do so or to accept that. And that's when I start making the distinction between having ecological space for rewilding or for large animals and having psychological or political space for that to actually happen. The difference would be comparing why Montana or Wyoming have trouble in accepting wolves and India, with so many people, they are sharing a space with tigers, which that, that would be kind of the most extreme ex- example. That is wild. I, I think about that sometimes, um, the arguments that are used against um, being, you know, too many people, um, too many interactions, dangerous for, for the population, used in places like Montana, and then 
I've never really cornered anybody who's used that argument and, and made them explain what they feel the difference between the tigers in India and that huge dense population and their argument against it for those reasons in wide open spaces like Montana and Wyoming. That's extremely interesting to me. Well, I think it's about our values, uh, our ethic, ethics, how we are as citizens and as societies willing to share a space with, with wildlife. And so it's not, a, it's not really about the amount of people. I think uh, we tend to focus on how many people live in a central country or density. And we tend to see that there is some kind of linear relationship between number of people and the possibility of coexistence with large beasts, but it's more about what each person thinks and feels that about the, the amount of people. And India is that extreme case because right now, I mean, tiger population is going up. They have more than a thousand tigers in a country that is smaller than the United States and it has more than a thousand million people, which is quite shocking. What you're saying is it's it's basically, do we have the psychological space? And in some places we do, when other spaces seem to be very cramped and in other places where they're not, we don't have the psychological space or the political space. Are they the same? Or are they related? Well, I suppose that, that the political space is just the public expression of our psychological space. So if, let's say, ranchers or farmers uh, don't really want to share space with with bison or wolves or pumas they will express that through their connections with the powerful people and that will become political i mean another example i mean northeastern argentina where we've been reintroducing jaguars uh, with conservation land trust now called rewilding argentina was much more open to the idea of Jaguar come back that Patagonia, which has lower density, and they are less willing to share space with Pumas, with what you call mountain lions. So again, it's same country, uh, different histories, and, and that will be a long story to tell why northern Argentina is different from, from southern Argentina. But the area with the most space and the lowest uh, human density, the one that is the least ready to accept living with a large predator, which is pumas, compared to the area willing to reintroduce jaguars. Is, is, are there other places, many other places, uh, examples that you have where this same, this same situation exists with the wide open spaces being less accepting, less able to accept uh, coexistence? I mean, there are some areas where uh, there's very few people and the people are very willing to accept uh, large herbivores or large carnivores. I mean, Namibia has very low density of people and they live with rhinos and the few lions that they have and, and elephants. They have elephants living in deserts. The only way you can live with elephants in deserts is because you are willing to share space with them because the the potential density of elephants in desert is so low that unless you are really willing to live with them you it will be very easy to kill them the idea is that it's not related about density it's about uh, history and culture and values i mean now, now in spain i'm starting to find something like that northern spain you have the cantabrian mountains beautiful mountains i mean in europe and there the people are living with 
wolves and bears, and they've been living with them for quite a while. And when you talk to the livestock ranchers there, they are they don't hate the animals. I mean, they they complain about it's a nuisance. They want compensations, but you don't feel any hate towards the bears and the and the wolves in general. But if I move southeast in Spain, you go to the Iberian Mountains. Much less people, very, they're losing people very, very fast, but they even have problems in some areas to share space with red deer, which is just deer. Mm-hmm. But it is just that they, they are not used to being, to sharing space with wildlife. It's just for them, it's quite alien, the concept. The idea of a natural landscape is a landscape full of sheep. That's their baseline. That's their ecological baseline. And in just the last five seconds of geological time, has this has the norm been farmlands and wide open human altered spaces and our cultures teach us in many places that that's what's normal that that's what should be there and that's what is used to to tell others that that's why we can't accept wolves that's why we can't have elephants here that's why but isn't it interesting that we're using a cultural value that's only been around for no time at all, as if it is the law of the land, so to speak, instead of what really is the law of the land, which is the longest running wildness. Well, I think the key concept is this concept of shifting, ecological shifting baseline. I mean, we we tend to think that the landscape in which we grew when we were children is the normal and, and is the natural landscape. So uh, ranchers tend to think that their landscape without bison was natural and bison are kind of alien and dangerous and the same could happen with wolves. So people who grew up with wolves, and uh, they are more used to that. And I think something that you can probably find in Africa quite normal is they're quite used to wildlife. I mean, they, they can complain, but they are used to it. And it's part of their, it's part of their myth and their, their, their national culture. I mean, for of course, there's no national culture in Africa because there are so many of them. But if there is something that you can feel when you go to Africa is this feeling that they are wildlife as part of nature is something very natural to them. Wildlife as part of nature is not very natural for Europeans. And I'm sure that Europeans brought that vision to North America. And for many people in North America, wildlife as part of nature is kind of, well, okay, I can accept elk and deer, but not bison. That's not part of the, the natural order for them. And something that is happening now, I think is quite interesting, is that something that is happening even more recently is that these many of these places are being abandoned, and that's happening in, in Europe. And I, I know it's also happening in the United States. So people that were used to being in farm lands and farmed landscapes now are seeing these rewilded landscapes and they are very afraid of that because that that is new that that is really happening not even in the last seconds of human history in the last microseconds it's it's a cultural thing it's a belief Uh, i've heard that uh beliefs are just thoughts you think over and over and over 
and changing that. I do you have any examples of cultural change where how how often have you ever seen people change significantly their ideas toward nature that were formerly this what we're talking about and and change them to a more welcoming attitude toward wildlife or rewilding or both or either well i think that that's happening already in many places in the world quite fast i mean especially if you think about the last 20 30 years i mean okay let, let's let's think about central america costa rica I mean, the way people are now accepting jaguars and, again, tapers in Costa Rica, because the whole economy of the country changed from the 70s, 80s, which was a typical agro-export country, to now a country that lives out of ecotourism and national parks. I mean, the society has changed totally in the way they see rainforest not as a threat which was the typical way to see rainforest if you were a farmer to uh, something beautiful and patriotic you probably know that now there are wolves very close to madrid and close to barcelona in, in spain and many people who are living in let's call it residential areas close on the mountains close to these cities they are totally open to to the idea of sharing a space with wolves wait until the moment that they become more common and they start eating their dogs then, then probably they don't like they won't like them so much but i mean the level of acceptance the way it has increased in most of the world is quite spectacular we have an interesting situation in america where though we can point to the economic benefits far far outweighing for ecotourism tourism hikers boaters all of these folks, photographers, uh, just tons of people pouring many, many millions of dollars more into states like Utah, that that hasn't actually swayed the guys who still make money the old ways. <laughs> they don't even know that they're the old ways yet. They think that that's the way it's always been and it will continue to always be. So even using the economic argument here, at least it hasn't gone over the top yet. It hasn't passed critical mass. Um, but there, but it is kind of, kind of funny to see that, you know, in places where it has, people switch their traditions around or their ideas about how wildlife and wildlands fit into their traditions based on that they're going to be okay economically, that it's okay to care. It's all right if they're there, as long as we still get to eat and still get to have a viable economic uh, system. Um, just a, it's just weird in the U.S. because we've shown that and it's happening, um, but they just haven't in some places realized it yet, I guess. I mean, one thing is to show that society in general benefits more with I don't know, wolves, let's say around the Houston case, which is kind of a classic case that the numbers show that the general benefits of wolf to society are much better than the, the nuisances and the losses. But then when you talk to a specific group that doesn't feel that they have anything to gain with the wolves, they are not making money out of wolves, they are losing some money, and probably they think they're losing a lot of power because they think that be, 
after behind the wolves, then you have the federal government and the environmentalists and all that. Uh, it makes total sense for them to oppose to to that. And they're they're defending their interests. Right. So it, it, even though the general result is positive, they don't feel that it's positive for their interests. So yeah, they will fight it. And that was that was probably the case before people in mass changed their mind in the places that you're talking about. I mean, there were people who were making their tr- traditional farming, ranching. I'm sure those guys put up a fight for for the longest time before the tide turned, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, because we are talking about identity. We are talking about the way they, they, they perceive themselves, the, the myths. And when I, when I use the term myth, I don't say that it's a lie. It's the way they, they see their, their world and their replacing the world. I mean, they are feeling threatened by this change because things are changing very fast. Uh, so yeah, the new generation probably will adapt. Uh, in other cases, I'm seeing new generations in rural areas in Spain that they are quite entrenched in their defense of the old ways, especially if they are being subsidies for that. So it's going to be a fight. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Have you developed any new, different understanding of, of what it means to do effective conservation in, in terms of leverage or some, some effective ways to make things move faster that is a result of what you and others have learned? Yeah, that's a tough question in the sense that there are many, many, there are different levels of analysis. I mean, if we talk in a public or political sense, I think the best way that conservation can work. And, and, and if you if I analyze different effective conservation programs, the most effective programs that were able to connect with the needs, even material or, or symbolic needs of the societies where they were embedded. I mean, the, the Iberá case where I work in Argentina is an excellent example because everything started with an alien idea from Douglas Tompkins of creating a huge national park in an area where they were not interested at all in national parks or in conservation. But once we started reframing the whole idea with restoring culture, restoring nature, and providing economic opportunities to kind of forgotten rural communities, they were much more interested about it. So I, I think at a political level, conservation will survive if we are able to dedicate it in a way that convinces the most amount of people in the way that they are interested. It's not, not, not about what us conservationists consider important. It's about what they consider important. I'm also thinking about like how people need to see themselves in the process. You need to carry them through the process and conservationists aren't always really good at that. We want to just talk about the science or we just want to talk about why do we have to talk about humans all the time when we're conservationists and our primary study is of the wild land and the critters within it. And 
you know, and, and conservationists get frustrated with that. But I'm seeing now that more and more people are reporting things like you've just talked about, that people need the, the greatest, most effective and quick change that you can make, at least as far as we know now, is that you've got to include people in the process to the point that they can see themselves crossing over into this, what they perceive as this new world, this wilder world. And if you can do that effectively, they come along with a lot less resistance. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's what, what you point to is kind of the big paradox of, or the personal paradox of most uh, conservationists. We, many of us, we were field biologists or something similar. We wanted to be in wild places. We were not very interested in people. We wanted to be there just watching wildlife. But once you, you kind of do the transition from biologist or wildlife lover to conservationist, you start seeing that the key is about managing people, not about managing ecosystems in general. Uh, once you see that, it's, it's mostly about, it's a political game. I mean, and, and when I say political, I don't mean about votes and parties and all that. It's about uh, society taking decisions in in common as a, as a whole. So if we want conservation to succeed, uh, we want society to support that view. And that could be because of yeah, economic reasons, uh, patriotic reasons, uh, because they love it, because they think there's some hope behind that. And it will change in every case. But, but I think any political professional will tell you, yeah, that's about politics. I mean, that's, that's what we do. We, we try to understand what the people think and we try to promote an agenda. And at the end, promoting an agenda, like any other, other group. And this agenda is about nature. Uh, and we have to connect that, that agenda with the needs of the people. We often have a lot of people who are trained in field biology and things and the sciences who are also trying to convey these messages that I think you're, you've made it very clear that if they're handled properly, you can make a lot of progress if they are not. And if the wrong people are in charge of developing that messaging, um, it's, it's in danger of backsliding instead of making progress. Yeah, I think what, what you are saying is kind of the key issue. And I think it's probably the main theme of, of the book, the Effective Conservation book is, I mean, in my opinion and in my experience, uh, conservation is probably one of the most complex and difficult professions there are. I mean, the other one that I will discuss similar will be rural development. I mean, the, the why? Because we need to understand and to manage two very complex systems. One is ecosystems, which are complex themselves because they have lots of interactions and pieces, and we need to understand them kind of. And the other is uh, societies and uh, human groups and institutions. And those are extremely complex also. It's kind of sad because we are in a hurry. We need to, we, there's lots to do. Uh, the challenge, the global challenge is huge and it's pressing. The forces on the other side, uh, the forces against nature and the traditions and institutions and psychological habits are so powerful that, wow, I mean, there's no way I can stop that. Mm. But when you look the stories of successful programs, 
there are great battles to be fought and many of them have been won. Uh, so kind of the idea is, okay, if we're gonna fight at least let's prepare ourselves, let's not be naive, let's not think that this is about being right, it's about not only being right, it's about being ready and being professional and let's win as many battles as we can and let's just enjoy it and, and have fun about it because uh, this, through that process, there are many excuses to celebrate and there are many things to celebrate. Common ground, I think, is something that is really becoming very important to me uh, lately. I, I, and it goes beyond conservation. I mean, you, we know what's happening in the world and how everything is becoming more extreme. Uh, everybody watched what happened after the US elections and nobody could believe it. But it's happening in many countries. I mean, this thing, this polariza polarization or this polarized culture is, is not good for us. I mean, because, we, and you know that social media promotes that. So yes, the idea of finding common ground with people who are different, which, and sometimes just understanding someone who's different doesn't, doesn't imply agreeing, but just understanding it isn't gonna taint you or or make you corrupt. It's like, okay, now I, I see the way you see it. I probably disagree with the way you see it. I kind of respect it, or at least I understand it. Let's see how we can find common ground. And there will be a few situations in which you know you're gonna have to fight. There's no way to find common ground. Uh, there's some guys who are just evil. But that's gonna be the exception. I mean, I think generally it's like, okay, I mean, let's try to, you are different. We are, we are condemned to, be, to become neighbors. So let's see how we can build something together. So tell me about Spain. Yes, yes, I came back three years ago after being away for more than 20 years, yeah. Spain has lots of ecological space, but not so much psychological and political space. Almost 40% of the country has the density of New Zealand, Canada, Namibia. Mm. So, I mean, we, we, we call it empty Spain. I mean, uh, because the people are through rural abandonment, everybody moved from the rural areas. From the, Spain has a lot of mountains. It's a very mountainous country. It's quite dry in many places, which doesn't make the area very productive. So the people move to the cities and to the, and to the coastline. So you have this idea of lots of tourists on, on, on the coast, uh, many, many touristic areas. You have Barcelona full of people, Madrid full of people, but then you have areas with, I, I remember a friend from Laramie, from Wyoming, being with me there and he, he just took a car for a while and drove through one of the mountains. He's like, there's less, less people here than in Wyoming, he told me. And, wow. and he, wasn't, he wasn't wrong. And you have the, Beautiful villages with only 50 people, 80 people. Beautiful medieval villages, very well kept, beautiful houses. But the owners of the houses, they just live in the cities. So they go there two weeks every year. The house, beautiful. Uh, so you have, wow, this is an amazing village. Nobody there. There's lots of space. You have uh, <laughs> uh, Ibex coming back. Uh, thousands of griffon vultures. I mean, but, uh, probably the best place in the world to see vultures right now is Spain, which is a paradox. But the challenge is that uh, the people that now live in these kind of abandoned areas, they are very 
resentful and they want their world to come back. The, the times in which there were more people in the villages, uh, there, were le there was less forest, forests are coming back, less wildlife, uh, more sheep, and there's a tension about it. So you have huge potential for rewilding. Actually, rewilding is happening by itself. And there's lots, res lots of resistance from rural people who want uh, the past to return. Wolves are expanding and wolves are becoming a, an issue because they are a symbol of a world that is being lost. And with wolves, you have urban values coming back, uh, environmentalists telling rural people what they should do in their land and they get pissed off about it. So that's kind of the situation. So lots of potential and lots of conflict at the same time. When I first saw open, beautiful, wonderful, endless, non-developed appearing space in Spain, I was just captivated. And I thought before I knew about a rewilding Spain, I thought there needs to be a rewilding Spain. <laughs> and I'm so excited to be ta finally talking to a guy who's absolutely involved in all of that, because I thought that was something that should be in existence. The moment that I realized Spain really is different than I ever thought. I mean, what you're, what you're saying is absolutely right. And it's something really exciting for me also. And, and I mean, and it's also sad. I mean, we've been Spaniards. As a, as a society, we did so good in marketing our landscape of sun uh, and beaches, all beaches with touristic places, and our historic towns and astronomy. All, it's all about cuisine, cuisine, wine and food, and uh, little streets and cathedrals that we absolutely forgot to communicate our wild landscapes and, and they're amazing. And act, actually what I'm starting now, we are starting a communication campaign to promote the protected areas in Spain. And can you believe that nobody has done that before? I mean, uh, nobody thought about it. And one of our problems as a, as a country, as a society, is that we became too... We are, we are a very federal country and nobody knows that very, very much. So everybody talks about his or her region uh, and there's, there's a lack of a national narrative like the one you have with your national parks. So there's a lack of someone telling, hey, this is a country called Spain, we have beautiful protected areas. We have 28% of the country is already protected in one way or another, which is huge. I mean, we have by far the largest protected area, uh, terrestrial area in all Europe, uh, much larger than France, that is a larger country, and much, much larger than Germany. The people don't know it, uh, except that the rural people, they know it and they feel the pressure of the protected areas and they just complain, 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 and they are not able to look at the half full glass and the positive effect of these protected areas. And I can't even believe that we can talk about Spain and wolves in the same sentence. And I think maybe there are a bunch of listeners here who feel the same way. It's an image problem, but what an explosive growth in, in a positive way, in awareness of the value of Spain beyond its food, wine, um, and streets and, and things like that, that. Adding to that 
not taking away from the culture or anything, that it is a big wild place with a lot of potential for rewilding. And I would imagine that it's so much a built up potential for the work that you are doing and about to do uh, because of that, because it's such a surprising thing to be talking about. Yeah, I think I think it's exciting. It's also challenging because again, you 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 have this huge touristic industry that is focused on the populated areas, and there's lots of inertia and, and millions of euros invested on that. But the potential is great, and little by little, you start seeing the changes. I mean, the Cantabrian mountains that I was telling you about in northern Spain, a small region there called Asturias, and I see the marketing they do and how they come combine bears, wolves, nature, uh, the sea, the mountains, the livestock, the history, the tradition. And it's, wow, this is, I mean, it's a much better, I mean, much better kind of tourism and much more uh, sensible uh, where you can have the best of all worlds. Island Press will be releasing Effective Conservation, Parks, Rewilding, and Local Development by Ignacio Jimenez. And I thank you so much for your time today. And I do very much want to keep up on your progress. And we will. And we'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I look forward for, for our next conversation. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.